Son of a Surgeon, written and performed by Don Futterman, directed and with engineering and sound design by Gizem Ozdemir. Son of a Surgeon was recorded at the TLV1 Studios in Tel Aviv. It starts before the Jewish holidays. I've promised to spend the entire stretch from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur with my loving and impatient parents. Don't worry, I tell myself. It'll be fine. I love my mother's food. We all get along. And I'm not expected to do anything except to show up for meals and for services at Temple Gates of Prayer, where I'll be happy to keep my parents' company in the second row. I should be relaxed, but I'm not. Taking stock of my life, that's my blood sport. Ten days of thinking about where I've been, where I am, and where I'm going, that's too much penance for me. And at shul, I'll be confronted by well-meaning family friends asking the single most terrifying question for someone in my situation. So, what are your plans? At 26, I'm between lives. I've just returned from two years in Israel. I have an Ivy League degree and a master's in social work, but I still don't know the color of my parachute or even which country I want to live in. I'm unsure of my next move, or of any move. As for my parents, they're committed to acting supportive of my missteps, but the truth is they can't conceal their perplexity at how I squander my advantages. What kind of man doesn't have his act together by the time he's 26? Hey, that's almost 30, which is halfway to 60, Oh my God, I am so far behind schedule. What is wrong with me? I'm a bookish sort, so I look for the answer in print. I read the Ur text on male anxiety, a book-length riff on the Grimm's Brothers fairy tale Iron John by the poet and spirit guide Robert Bly. In the cover photo, Bly's curled white tresses have a nylon sheen, and I can't decide if his vest looks effeminate or earthy, but that doesn't really matter. According to Bly, I belong to a generation of men, crippled, because we have no picture of what the central males in our psychic universe do with their time. Our fathers disappear before we wake up. They spend their days in distant locales, engaged in mysterious endeavors, and they return home only to eat and sleep. Wow! Bly's lament strikes so deep in my creeping belly fat. But I take Bly with a grain of salt. I take everything with a grain of salt. That's crucial to my veneer of sophistication. But then I spit that grain of salt into the gutter. By God, begad, gadzooks, Bly is right. Listen to this. Instead of living in her medically sealed classrooms, in my books, in my head, or in my mother's kitchen, I should have been sowing and reaping alongside my father, learning to forge steel at his elbow, mastering his craft amidst the rough camaraderie of men. That must be responsible for the life-sucking malaise which has doomed me, all of us, to enervating restlessness. As Bly tells it, it all goes back to our fathers, and the key to understanding our dilemma is the strange being at the heart of Iron John, a Grimm's Brothers fairy tale, which I'm going to tell you for the next ten minutes. 
once there was a kingdom next to a vast forest. Whoever entered the forest never returned, so the king forbade his subjects from going into the woods, and for a long time nobody went missing. One day, a foreign hunter ignored the warnings, but instead of disappearing in the forest, he made an astounding discovery. There was a great, wild, hairy man lying at the bottom of a lake. To the hunter's astonishment, the hairy man reached out and snatched one of the hunter's dogs. The hunter had the wild man hauled out of the water and dragged back to civilization and the king locked the hairy man in a cage next to the palace. And who do you think liked to play in that very spot? The prince. The prince spent his days tossing a golden ball to himself, watching the sun glint off his favorite toy as it sailed through the air. One day the prince got too close to the cage, and the hairy man reached through the bars and snatched the ball before the boy could catch it. Give me back my ball! As soon as you set me free. The prince thought about this. I'm not allowed to let you out. Anyway, the cage is locked. I couldn't free you even if I wanted to. The key is under your mother's pillow. The prince ran to his parents' bedroom, and sure enough, he found the key just where the hairy man said it would be. The prince unlocked the cage. The hairy man stepped outside and flipped the ball back to the boy. The hairy man was about to make his escape when the prince said, My father will beat me when he finds out what I've done. Hmm. So the hairy man lifted up the boy, put him on his shoulders, and carried him off. They came to a distant forest where the hairy man raised the prince as his own. Each night, they sat by the pond at the heart of the woods. One day... The hairy man told the prince, I must leave the forest today, and you will remain here alone to guard the pond. There is only one rule. You must make sure nothing touches the water. All day the prince kept his watch carefully, but near sunset his finger started to hurt, and without thinking he poked it into the pond. When he pulled it out, his finger had turned to gold. When the hairy man came back, the prince dug his hands deep in his pockets to hide what he had done. You touched the pond. No, 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 I, I followed the rule. Take your hand out of your pocket. Tomorrow you will do better. Nothing must touch the water. And the hairy man left the prince to sulk on his own. The following day, the prince was careful not to touch the water. Whenever his golden finger was hurting, he wound it in his long, dark hair to make sure he wouldn't repeat his mistake. Just as the sun was setting, his finger started to throb, and he wound it so tightly and pulled so hard that one of his hairs fell into the pond. The prince plucked it out of the water quick as could be, but it was too late. The hair had turned to gold. The prince hid the golden hair in a bush. When the hairy man came back that night, he knew something was wrong. The pond has been disturbed. No, no, nothing happened. A hare fell in the water. Don't lie to me again. Tomorrow you will have one last chance. You must not touch the water. Do not even look in the pond. If you fail, you will have to leave me. The next day, 
the prince kept his watch from a distance so he wouldn't be tempted and accidentally betray the hairy man's trust. All day, he repeated the hairy man's warnings to himself. Don't touch the water. Don't look in the pond. Don't touch the water. Don't look in the pond. Again, it happened at sunset. A question formed in the boy's mind. What's in the pond that I'm not supposed to see? As the last rays of the sun slipped through the trees, the prince ran to the pond for one quick glance. And what did he see? He saw himself. He leaned down to look closer, and his long, dark hair tumbled into the water. The prince jerked his head back, but it was too late. His hair was entirely gold. The prince heard the hairy man approaching, and he quickly tied a kerchief around his head. The hairy man took one look at him. Don't be ridiculous. The boy removed the kerchief, and his golden hair cascaded across his shoulders. My poor lad, you must now go out into the world on your own. Before sending him away, the hairy man offered the prince this lifeline. You failed your test, but I know your heart is pure, so I will always be on call for you. If you find yourself in distress, you can summon me with this song. I have vast power and great wealth, and I will use them to help you. Sing this song, and I will appear. So the boy set out, frightened and ill-prepared, buoyed only by the hairy man's promise that he would be on call. The prince wandered from village to town to open country. Afraid his hair would attract unwanted attention, he kept it hidden, bundled under his cap. He slept rough in the fields and the forests, often went hungry, and had days when he saw no other human being. When he could, the prince worked for his supper, as a stable boy or as a farmhand, building roads or barns, but always moving on, until, at long last, he found a job in a palace in a faraway kingdom. One day the princess who lived in that palace spied him working in the garden. The sun was so fierce, the boy took off his cap for the briefest moment, and the princess got a glimpse of his golden hair. <gasps> Three times she summoned the boy to her private chambers to bring her flowers. She ordered him to remove his cap in her royal presence, but each time the prince answered, I cannot. On the third visit, she waited behind the door and snatched off his cap. She was bedazzled. It was then they fell in love. But the prince was so frightened, he ran back to the garden. The princess cried to her mother, who told the gardener to order his boy to get rid of his cap. But again the prince said, I cannot. When the gardener demanded the prince explain himself, he said the first thing that popped into his head, that he had a terrible rash on his scalp. When the queen heard this, she ordered the boy's dismissal. The prince was bereft. But soon there were bigger problems to worry about, because the kingdom was now at war. The prince wanted to join the battle, but there was only one sickly mare left behind. So the prince rode the mare to the edge of the forest and sang his song. 
The hairy man appeared instantly. I need a horse to join the fight. You shall have a mighty steed, impenetrable armor, and much more. The prince found himself leading a phantom army, which quickly vanquished the enemy. Nobody knew who the stranger was who had won the day. But when the prince rode back to the village on the old, broken-down mare, they laughed at his tales of battle. To celebrate the victory, the king announced a jousting tournament. The winner would be rewarded with a sack of gold, bestowed by the princess herself. Along with his armor and his steed, the hairy man gave the boy jousting lessons, which was perhaps not fair to the other contestants, but nobody said life is fair. To make a long story short, the prince won the tournament and he was ordered to remove his helmet to receive his reward. This time the prince obeyed. His golden hair entranced the crowd and won the hearts of the king and queen. It didn't take long for his royal origins to be revealed. The prince was reunited with his parents, who were delighted to discover that their son was alive and about to be married to a suitable royal. Before taking his wedding vows, the grateful prince summoned the hairy man one last time. To the astonishment of all, the hairy man appeared instantly, decked out in royal garb. Thank you, my son. Like Beauty's Beast, he had been under a curse, which was now lifted, and he too was revealed to be a king. The prince and princess were married, and they lived happily ever after. Marriage and monarchy. Such are the enticements and entitlements of adulthood. If only, if only we can release the hairy man we have drowned and bound. If we can liberate the suppressed wilding inside, set free and master those uncontrollable passions which freak out nice Jewish boys, the urge to power, to sex, to losing control, to gaining control, to competing and winning. I think a lot about that hairy man, always ready to be summoned, and I become obsessed with fathers and sons. I decide to start with my own father. What's my dad like? Is he a wild man? Was he ever a wild man? My father is a doctor. He's been taking care of creatures all his life. Starting with the injured stray animals, he hid from his parents in their cellar until he could nurse them back to health. He takes care of his patients, of course, but also everyone in our extended family. My grandparents, uncles, aunts, our cacophony of cousins, once, twice, and thrice removed. My father is always meticulous. Every night, before he collapses into deep and immediate slumber, he carefully hangs up his jacket and vest, returns his tie to the tie rack, gently smooths his pants along the crease, and lays them over the pants horse next to his bed. Then Dad inserts shoe trees into his black oxfords and reassigns them their place in his hard-soled battalion. Dad is generous and kind. He doesn't talk a lot. 
He's reserved. He's always measured. His few words are strained and soft-spoken. It's true that when he gets enraged, his voice can rip the roof off. But such occasions are extremely rare. My father was rushed through medical school because of World War II, so he became a licensed M.D. at 23. But the war ended just as he graduated. He moved to Miami to launch a general practice. He was so desperate to find patients, he even kept his office open during a hurricane. And during that storm, he got a walk-in offer he couldn't refuse. He was driven blindfolded to a secret location where he had to remove several slugs from a gangster's chest with no anesthesia. He was also the unlicensed pilot of some rich guy, so I picture him soaring and swooping over swamplands and profiteers back in the unregulated frontier days of Florida and cavorting with beauties in Miami nightclubs, or so it appears from the ancient photos we find. At 30, Dad closed up shop to retrain as a surgeon, but halfway through his residency, he was nabbed by the Army for French Indochina. The Army kept him for years but never sent him overseas. Finally discharged with the rank of major, he began his surgical career almost a decade behind schedule. And that's right when I was born. Now my father is a surgeon, the epitome of competence, of excellence, and as straight a shooter as ever came out of New Jersey. He'll head up a hospital department and become a professor of surgery at Mount Sinai, and he's already been the president of the synagogue. Is my father a wild man? Once upon a time. The men's movement, inspired in part by Robert Bly, offers drumming and sweat lodges at heavily scheduled, pricey, bonding adventures in the desert. But this will empty my bank account and take me no closer to my actual father. So just before Rosh Hashanah, I asked Dad to show me the gore and let me watch him perform an operation. He is ecstatic. And I'm so pleased to have pleased him, I don't probe more deeply into the source of his joy. I should have remembered my physiology term paper at the Bronx High School of Science. Dad was involved with the second trials of a newfangled, high-risk cancer regimen called chemotherapy, which he thought would make an excellent topic for my paper. The basic idea of chemo was that you poison the body in the hope that the patient would outlive the tumor. My father handed me the original typewritten Chicago study, along with a medical dictionary and the Merck Manual, a kind of concentrated Wikipedia of doctoring. He was thrilled to be explaining chemotherapy to me, elucidating cancer and cancer treatment, enlightening me at every turn. He encouraged me to ask questions, lots of questions, and despite his overloaded schedule, he stayed on call at all hours to answer every one of them. So I should anticipate that my request to watch Dad perform an operation has revived a secret dream, long suppressed, that just maybe, unlikely as it seems, his younger son will follow in his footsteps. And someday there will be a father and son shingle hanging outside his office and a lifetime of shop talk to carry him into his golden years. Alas, I forget about my high school paper. In fact, I forget that I had asked to watch him perform surgery, but my father does not forget.
The morning after two long days of high holiday services, Dad wakes me at 5 a.m. and tells me I have 20 minutes to get ready so we can reach the hospital in time for the operation. Now, at this point, I've been asleep for only two hours. After my parents went to bed, I talked by phone with my on-again, off-again girlfriend until the middle of the night, and then I read many chapters of Robert Bly to quiet my brain. So at this very early hour, I do my morning ablutions with ice water to restore myself to the world of sentient beings. I'm almost conscious, semi-prepared to meet that long walk to the car, but my mother intercepts us at the front door. Where are you two going? <clears throat> he wants to see an operation. Saul, who do you have scheduled today? Uh, Mr. Baum. Mr. Baum? Saul, isn't that liver? My father says nothing. Liver is always messy and always endless. My mother states this for the record. She's a nurse and has spent many days in the operating room. She knows what she's talking about. Saul, he faints at the sight of blood. This is not precisely accurate. I passed out one time. I had the flu, and my father was taking blood from my arm at the kitchen table. I wasn't nervous. I trusted my father. In fact, I trust all doctors. That's been ingrained in me from birth. But as soon as the blood came out of my arm, I immediately went to the bottom of a well, deep beneath the kitchen floor, where I lay for 20 minutes while my two medical professional parents tried to revive me. An ambulance was on its way before I came to. I asked my father why I'd passed out. It was an autonomous venous response. Uh, it's nothing you can control. That means my veins had turned off my blood flow to protest being penetrated by a needle. Either that, or it was a nervous reaction to the sight of my own blood, the blood that's supposed to be inside of me, now leaving my body. One or the other, or both. I've forgotten about that incident. I'd been unconscious for most of it after all, but my traumatized parents never had. Saul, there are always complications with liver surgery, you know that, and the complications are always bloody. We have been warned. My father is masked and gowned and glowing white. Dad is bent far over the patient as he operates on Mr. Baum in a great amphitheater. I'm safely behind the glass in stadium seats with the other spectators. All of us are impressed by Dad's speed and grace, we're hanging on every deft movement of his scalpel. He stays calm. He never rushes. Suddenly, Dad lifts his head, looks over his mask directly at me, and calls me to join him inside the surgical cubicle. Everyone freezes. The doctors, the nurses, the spectators, even the anesthetized Mr. Baum. They are watching me, awaiting my next move. I'm not sure what to do. I'm not a doctor. But the men sitting next to me are wearing suits. And as ridiculous as it sounds, one of them looks exactly like George Clooney on ER. And next to him is Marcus Welby. And he's the one who tells me to get a move on. So I rise, hitch up my pants, and suck up my confidence. I open the glass door to the operating booth, and I squeeze in next to the two attendings, and I face my father, over the unconscious Mr. Baum on the operating table. 
my father makes several quick incisions in Mr. Baum's abdomen. He thrusts both of his hands deep inside the patient. He lowers his face to the body to get a closer look. He's feeling around. It looks like he's squeezing or groping or struggling to grab hold and extract something that I can't see. Finally, my father lifts a soft slab of brick-colored slime out of Mr. Baum's body. The blood gushes up and over the side of this throbbing blob, down my father's gloved hands and arms, pouring into a bucket held by a nurse. Thick red ooze splatters Dad's face, and it paints his glasses, hiding his eyes behind tiny panels of crimson. Is that Mr. Baum's liver? This is a tumor, my father says. He places the pulsating, blackish, reddish lump on top of my open, sweating palms. I stare at this mass in wonder and in fear. What should I do? You must take this tumor far away from here and pound it into oblivion. Put it inside the world's strongest Ziploc bag, and then you must bury it 100 feet deep in the earth. But be very careful. It's malignant. My father slowly rotates the sticky, viscous tumor which is sitting on top of my palms. I brace myself for anything, for the sight of an infestation of maggots. But instead, I see that my father has carved my name into this drooling mass. I start to feel wobbly. Yo ho ho, no! Hairy man whisks me off on the back of a steed. The room is spinning, and I am going down. My mother has been vindicated. It's 5.15 in the morning, and my mother is blocking our way at the front door. So, this case is going to be a bloody mess. It's not for him. The kibosh has been lowered. My mother tells my father to leave me home and orders me back to bed. My bed sounds extremely welcoming and soft. My father drives off in his Buick to battle Mr. Baum's liver alone, leaving me with the women folk and young'uns. There are no young'uns. I am the young'un. Yo-ho-ho-ho, Robert Bly, with your manly preachings, despite your earthy vest and your nylon tresses, where are you when I need you? When we were kids, my father took my brother and I on fishing expeditions off of Montauk at the far end of Long Island. It's two hours' drive from Flushing. We had to leave home at 3.30 in the morning in order to reach the boat in time for the 6 a.m. sail. Dad was undaunted, but I was exhausted, cranky, done for, before I ever crossed the gangplank. My father was thrilled to be heading for open waters. There were 10 or 15 other men on the boat, weekenders, who seemed like practiced fishermen to me. They loved nothing better than sitting by the edge comparing their rods and reels, and they knew the difference between bass and flounder. Dad had learned to fish in Florida, battling giant sunfish in the open seas like Ernest Hemingway. Montauk must have seemed a sedate compromise. My brother and I were the sole representatives of our age group. 
None of the other fathers had dragged their kids out of bed in the middle of the night. I didn't appreciate, I couldn't appreciate, that my father was defying the anti-domestic code by including us. He must have been torn between his obligation to keep us entertained and his longing for the brotherhood of men. But he mentored us in worming hooks, feeling for that first tug from somewhere in the Atlantic, and the art of reeling them in. Success meant tossing a live, wet, slimy, and violently flapping fish into a bucket where it knocked around in desperation, its eyes bulging out as if trying to gape the fish's body from the pail, up in the air and back into the water. A dad could slice fish with the best of them, but he let the boat crew chop off the heads and the tails and the fins because he knew we couldn't stomach watching him do it. In those pre-cell phone days, the skippers had their own secret frequency for trading tips on where the fish were biting. On our final expedition, there was some early action, but then the fishermen kept coming up empty. So we headed somewhere else, and then we headed somewhere else again. But the lures bobbed on the surface, and the rods remained inert. Sitting there and rocking side to side, the diesel fumes became overpowering. They mixed with sea salt, live fish, dead fish, and blood. The winds picked up, the boat rocked more violently, and my insides began sloshing. I searched frantically for my sea legs, but I became seasick and I stayed seasick. These men had rented the boat for the entire day. So there was no question of turning back, simply because one little kid was miserable. After I puked the first time, one of the fishermen suggested that instead of heaving into a bucket of fish guts, I should lean over the side. Dad agreed this was a good idea. And then, magic. My puke proved to be Gold Star Chum, which attracted fish in large and hungry schools. Instantly, I became the most popular person on board, the men were fighting to place me at their side along the rail. They offered me their lunches and their desserts and their snacks, encouraging me to eat as much as possible, as quickly as possible. After I scarfed down and heaved up these initial offerings, my father banned food. I wanted to lie down in the bunk, but Dad promised me I would feel much worse below deck and insisted I stay next to him, crowded as we were by a small cluster of men who reeled in fish as regularly as I spewed out my innards. My father taught me a trick. He showed me how to focus on a point in the distance, even when there was no object in sight you could hone in on. This was in order to control my empty stomach, which was now bringing up only saliva. Looking back, I feel for my father. Dad had wanted to share with us life and death battles on the high seas, and he wound up playing nursemaid. And while the Fisherman Brotherhood credited me for an exceptionally rich haul that day, our manly Futterman trio never set sail again. <laughs> ¶¶